You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Aurélie Najm from Glasgow, reporting from Room Now. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but few years ago, there was this study in pre-RA, um, the Prairie study, where they looked at um, um, at-risk for RA individuals, giving them um, rituximab infusion. And I, 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 this study really made a lot of noise because some people were finding it very provocative. Um, actually, after one infusion on rituximab, after approximately a year, a quarter of the patient treated um, were delayed in the onset of their rheumatoid. And there have been a lot of debates whether or not, you know, it was ethical and whether or not um, it was worth treating so many patients to just delay the disease of only one year. Well, now, um, today was presented another study, abstract five, oh, sorry, abstract 455, the ARIA study. This time they looked into abatacept. And um, they treated individuals at risk for RA with a batacept for six months subcutaneously uh, in the RCT compared to placebo. The subjects that were included in this study had to be ACPA positive, had to have arthralgia, and had to have subclinical signs of inflammation on their MRI. Um, so you can you can start thinking, right, this is very close to actually clinical array. But um, uh, anyway, they've been given uh, the treatment and the primary um, endpoint of this study was the improvement of subclinical inflammation on MRI, synovitis or tenosynovitis. Um, and um, they were able to show that in two thirds of the patients treated, with abatacep, there was an improvement compared to only one third um, of the patients that were treated with placebo. Right, this is good, but um, does that prevent from patients to, um, you know, moving to the next step and, and developing clinical array? Well, um, that was their secondary endpoint. And actually they were able to show that uh, in a six-month period of time, only four patients developed RA in the abatacept group compared to 17 in the placebo group. Well, these data are interesting, but it's only six months follow-up. We um, definitely need to know if, um, first of all, RA onset can be delayed or even prevented, and they have 18 months data on the way, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, in the end, I think it's quite interesting, but it's the same thing. We really need to know what's the number of subjects to treat. Regarding the safety profile, it was pretty fine. There was uh, no new safety uh, signals, 12 adverse events in the abatisept group, including one pneumonia. Um, so I think there's, um, I'm quite looking forward for next ACR 2022 so we can get the final results. In the meantime, stay tuned with Ram now for more rheumatology content and follow me on Twitter at Oeli Raimo. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. So I'm at ACR 2021 Convergence. 
And I've actually come across this abstract, which is an extension of what they did and presented at ULAR, which is on abiratamide. It's abstract 1458, and what they did was 288 patients with active lupus. Now, if you remember, abiratamide, um, you know, affects cerebron, which then affects ubiquination. And so the theory is when you uh, use this drug, it will decrease lupus activity. So indeed, um, the results are that compared to placebo, abiratamide actually had shown improvement in the lupus responder index um, at 54.3% compared to um, 35% placebo. And even when there was crossover from placebo over to ibirdamide, um, there was also improvement. They also found improvement in the type one interferon signature um, compared to baseline, and this was actually sustained. Now, in terms of side effects, about 15% had urinary tract infection, 11% upper respiratory tract infection, neutropenia in 10%. So this is a drug that I think we need to be looking out for. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for RimNow. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. I'm also known as the Dow Index. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for RimNow. I'm here at ACR 2021 Convergence. I want to share with you another abstract that I found very interesting. This is abstract 0128. And this shows that patients have a higher rate of major adverse cardiovascular events in lupus after non-cardiac surgery. And what they did was they took 4,750, so 4,750 patients with lupus and compared them to 485,000 patients who are controls. And they looked at diabetic controls as well as non-diabetic controls. And they matched them for race, age, comorbidities, um, and adjusted for the preoperative revised cardiac risk index. And what they found was that lupus patients actually have the same risk for MACE compared to diabetic controls within one month after a non-cardiac surgery. So they found also that if the patient is older, if they're um, not white, this also increases the risk for MACE. And gender didn't affect this, lupus activity didn't affect this, or even preoperative testing. So the take-home point is that the, our patients, our lupus patients, have the same cardiovascular risk as a diabetic patient. We need to be better at controlling you know, external factors, tell them to quit smoking, control their lipids, you know, see if they're exercising. So there are factors that we can control aside from just them having lupus. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for RimNow. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. I'm also known as the Dow Index. Hello, I'm uh, Anthony Chan. I'm a consultant rheumatologist in London, United Kingdom and reporting here at ACR21 on the Room Now website. And today I'm uh, joined by Dr. Nelly Zert. She's from Lebanon. She's a rheumatologist in Lebanon and she has done some interesting work which she has presented here at ACR21. So welcome, uh, Dr. Zia. Uh, and Thank you. We're very interested to hear about uh, the work that you've done, done with ASAS, the PERSPA study. Uh, one of the questions that we have is how we define peripheral spondyloarthritis. Well, we are very clear about axial spondyloarthritis. The area of peripheral SPA is sometimes still a bit of a mix back as to what exactly defines this population. So uh, poster 1787 is very interesting and we wanted to get your thoughts about the, uh, the findings from your study. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you, Anthony. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm an ASAS member, and that's why uh, we had the opportunity to study the PERSPA database. The PERSPA database was conducted by Professor Maxime Dugados and uh, Dr. Clementina Lopez-Medina. And uh, the main results were published. And after that, we had the opportunity to access the data for other research questions. And uh, one of the interesting questions was about peripheral spa, because we know that peripheral spa is not very defined. And uh, there's a lot of overlap between peripheral spa and the other uh, spa subtypes like axial and psoriatic arthritis. So we decided to conduct this uh, ancillary analysis of PERSPA uh, to try to understand first what is the prevalence of peripheral spa among the spa um, cohort. And then, uh, especially the pure form, so the one where you don't have any overlap between axial spa and the psoriatic arthritis. And also, we wanted to check the phenotype of these uh, patients and the burden of disease in these patients. So we used uh, two approaches. So uh, PERSPA has more than 4,000 uh, participants. We used the patients who were uh, uh, diagnosed by their uh, physician as uh, peripheral, axial, or psoriatic arthritis. And we used two, two approaches to uh, define peripheral spa. The first one was based on the criteria approach. And so we looked at the ASAS criteria uh, for axial and peripheral spa and the CATSPAR criteria for psoriatic arthritis. And using this approach, we found that uh, peripheral spa uh, was, um, okay, let me check the number. So of uh, 4,185 patients, 1,317 had peripheral spa according to the criteria approach. So around 31%. While when we used the diagnostic approach, meaning uh, what the rheumatologist said uh, was the main disease, uh, one of the main spa disease about, about the patient, it was uh, 433, so it was 10%. So whether you use the criteria approach or you use the diagnostic approach, the percentage of uh, peripheral spa will be different. Uh, and when you look specifically at, at pure peripheral spa, you can see that using the criteria approach, you have 17% who were classified as peripheral spa, 17% of peripheral spa are pure peripheral spa. And when you use the diagnostic approach, 62% of patients have pure spa out of all peripheral spa. So I don't want to confuse you with numbers, but when you use the criteria in a non-restrictive way, you have, uh, you have more peripheral spa as combination. Whereas when you use the diagnostic approach, you have more peripheral spa as pure spa. So when uh, you use the physician's judgment, the peripheral spa has to be pure in order to be categorized or labeled as peripheral spa. What are your, what are your thoughts uh, in terms of the differences between a criteria-based uh, approach versus a clinical, a clinician-based approach in terms of trying to define this better? Yeah, I think that uh, when, uh, in the mind of the rheumatologist, when the patient has a peripheral spa combined with axial and psoriatic arthritis, we have a tendency to uh, diagnose the patient with other things than a peripheral spa. 
So if you have peripheral and axial, we have a tendency of diagnosing in priority as axial spa. And the, this should not, uh, the peripheral spa part should not be neglected because if you look at the burden of the disease, the burden of patient with peripheral spa as pure peripheral spa was higher than the burden of pure axial spa and pure psoriatic arthritis. So really these patients who have peripheral spa have a high burden of disease and have less use of biotherapies, so meaning they might be undertreated. So this study highlights that we need really a better definition of peripheral spa. We need a better identification of the disease. And we really need, need to pay attention to these patients because they are suffering from their disease and they are, might be undertreated. So there is also some work uh, at the ACR21 where they have done it the other way around, where they have taken the, the psoriatic arthritis patients and meant to study if they have pure axial disease, so the opposite way of uh, this study. And that percentage was quite low. It was only about 2% uh, where they had pure axial uh, PSA. Um, and in time, they seem to have developed more peripheral symptoms. In your mind, do you think these are two separate conditions, as in uh, axial PSA or somebody with XPA with psoriatic arthritis, or do you think they are probably the same condition but just evolving differently over time? Yes, we have reasons to believe that these patients have like are evolving under the same big umbrella of spondyloarthritis. But it's not, uh, I, I don't think that you should lump them all together. I think that there are some specificities. It's the same disease spectrum, but there are some specificities, specificities that we should know about because they will have a lot of therapeutic implication as it may look. So maybe patients with axial psoriatic arthritis would respond to other um, biologics like interleukin-17 inhibitor more than patients who have axial spa who would maybe respond better to uh, drugs like TNF inhibitors. So I think that there's a lot to, uh, to understand about that uh, in the future. Thank you. I think that's a very important point. The, uh, the treatment response will be very different based on the classification of uh, these two groups. So thank you. That is a very, uh, very interesting work. And thank you for your work to help define peripheral SBA is uh, a bit better for us. I also uh, have um, reviewed that uh, you are also doing some very interesting work where you are looking at um, patient acceptability of the COVID-19 vaccine and also the use of telehealth, uh, some of the other posters that you're presenting here. Uh, I just wonder whether you could give us some key points or key highlights from uh, some of the other work that you're doing. Yes, so uh, we have three abstracts presented on behalf of the ARLAR, the Arab League of Association for Rheumatology. And uh, the first one is about the acceptance or the hesitancy regarding the COVID-19 vaccine in our region. So when we talk about the ARLAR region, uh, the study included 19 uh, countries. We included uh, more than 3,000 participants and tried to understand their hesitancy. Uh, and so uh, briefly, if I want to share a little bit of, of results in these 3000 patients, uh, like it was half patients and the controls were uh, HCPs, health care uh, professionals. 
And you can uh, see that you can, as expected, the patients have more uh, hesitancy and uh, the acceptability of the vaccine. The this, this study was done in um, April, May, 2021. The acceptability of the COVID-19 vaccine by the patient was 63%. And by the HCPs, it was 81%. So also both of them were not really optimal. What the study added it, is that we tried to understand uh, why would people accept uh, the, the vaccine? And this is a reason like uh, to, to, to take action. And actually the main determinants of acceptability were perceptions regarding vaccination in general. So not really related to their rheumatic disease, not really related to the fear of flare or to the uh, uh, drugs. They were afraid about the vaccine in general because there's a lot of uh, uncertainties, especially at that time. They were afraid about the side effect of, of the vaccine in general. It was correlated with their previous perception about vaccine, previous um, intake of uh, influenza vaccine. So what we highlighted in this uh, first study is that uh, there is some uh, hesitancy in patients and in healthcare professionals, and we need to really to address this to be able to uh, implement the vaccine in the general population. And actually what we needed to do is to be more transparent about the risk of side effect, to communicate better with them. And this is what we did actually using our social media platform. We addressed these, um, these concerns uh, by like ma making webinars and posts just to reassure the patients about the uh, risk of the vaccine. And so, so hopefully, the, hopefully with yeah. time, your, your uptake will be uh, higher than 63%. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like anything new, I think we, are, we were all facing the same, same challenge uh, last year. Um, hopefully in the years to come, this will, this will change with more information. And uh, the mm. last bit is about the um, acceptance of telehealth. How, do you do telemedicine then? Do you use a lot of that? Yes, we had to do it on, uh, on an emergency basis. We, we, didn't, we didn't have the structure to do it. And the RLR countries have uh, really are not homogeneous. You have uh, countries with very high GDP, very high, very good infrastructure, and countries who have uh, very low GDP and really no, no infrastructure at all. So it was really a challenge create, creating these guidelines for, uh, for telehealth uh, in, in rheumatology. And uh, what we did, actually, we gathered people from uh, the different uh, Arab countries. Uh, we did a, uh, three uh, Delphi rounds. We did, of course, a literature review. We studied the challenges uh, that were specific to our region. And we did three Delphi rounds with voting. And we, uh, we, we published four general principles and 12 statements. And uh, it was really addressing uh, the ideas of confidentiality, of uh, patient-informed consent. So it was more of a guidance that should be later on applied in each country because each country has different, um, have different uh, jurisdictions, different uh, laws. So we gave like general guidance, like to give a, um, to legalize the format so people really can use it because it's a new idea and when it's there's a new there are new ideas it's difficult to implement 
we had also on the panel patients, we had payers, we had regulators. So we listened to everyone's uh, idea. And uh, I hope that this will be implemented in practice. We also did a triage system, like a sort of orientation for the rheumatologist about what are the cases where uh, telemedicine can be applied and what are the cases where it really, really shouldn't and we should really bring in the patient. So I think patient selection is uh, quite important uh, yeah. in, in, uh, in trying to use these new technologies. And yeah. I think for certainly in our experience, um, there are certain groups of patients where this would work very well for them, uh, but for others, um, they would still be better to be seen in person. Um, so thank you very much for your time. Uh, and you know these are very yeah, interesting and important studies. Uh, so thank you for your time and uh, we enjoy the, uh, the rest of the ACR21. So we're thank reporting you, from, yeah, thank you. We're reporting from Room Now. Thank you. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at ACR 2021 Convergence. And I wanna share with you this abstract, abstract 1933. And this is very interesting because it relates to how our patients are doing during COVID and in particular lupus patients. So this is from the Global Rheumatology Alliance database. And what they did was identify 504 lupus patients who've had COVID. 90% of them were women, average age was around 47. 80% of these patients were not hospitalized and about 7% of them um, were hospitalized but didn't require oxygen or mechanical ventilation. 9% required ECMO and 3% died. So what they found associated with poor outcomes, and this is through a multivariate analysis, is actually race. So if a patient is Black or Hispanic, the odds ratio for a poor outcome is 2.18. Use of prednisone, 5 to 10 milligrams a day, confers an odds ratio of 7.33. And then if the patient um, were on conventional synthetic DMARDs, that also increases the risk. And they really didn't figure it out whether or not the, the disease modifier was azathioprine, mycophenolate, because we do know that mycophenolate can increase um, risk for hospitalization and also decreases response to vaccination. And then also, if patients have chronic kidney disease, the odds of them having a poor outcome is about 2.61. So, you know, we have to pay attention to our patients. We got to do whatever we can to mitigate their risk. And the best way to mitigate risk is actually get them vaccinated and get them boosted. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011, also known as the Dow Index. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm consultant rheumatologist in London, United Kingdom, and I'm reporting here the ACR21 for the Room Now site. One of the questions that we have uh, in treatment of axospondyloarthritis is the ability. Uh, or the opportunity to reduce the dose of the biologic treatments once patients are in remission or they are feeling very well. And we call this the dose tapering. Now we have done this uh, sometimes uh, ad hoc in some of our patients and more studies have been uh, looking into this. And one of the abstracts that I want to highlight to you is abstract number 364 here at the ACR21 a study looking at dose tapering of TNF inhibitors in patients with exospondyloarthritis over a two-year period. The key thing here is that they 
selected their patients carefully, uh, those that who were able to dose taper. And this was based on some important criteria. And they looked at having a BASDI score, a BAF ankylosing spondylitis disease activity score of less than 40 over 100 or 4 over 10. The physician global score of less than 40 or 100, again, of less than 4 over 10, and no signs of any disease activity in one year prior to them dose tapering. And these patients could uh, be lowered to either two-thirds of the, of the dose, half the dose, or a third of the dose, gradually over a period of 48 weeks. And what they have done is that the end, at the end of two years, when they followed these patients up, uh, they were... Uh, nearly 200 patients in the study, 106 of them uh, were followed up at two years, and almost half of this, 55 patients or 52% of patients, were able to successfully taper their dose. And then there are smaller proportions who achieved the other dose tapering, uh, either two-thirds, half, or a third. This is an important study for us because uh, as we uh, many of our patients with axial spondyloarthritis are often younger, and they would have a longer time on treatment uh, with their condition. The ability to reduce the dose, uh, which means either reduction in the frequency of the dosing or the actual dose of the drug, could be a useful way of trying to reduce uh, long-term drug exposure in these patients and perhaps minimize some of the uh, risks, including infections in the longer term. And this is an important study uh, that shows that there is a possibility of doing this uh, in a very objective way uh, in our patients. So patient selection, ensuring that they have very low disease activity and no active disease for a year prior to commencing the treatment uh, was shown to be successful in the ability to dose taper these uh, patients. So I think this will be useful in terms of us uh, clinical uh, in our clinics and the practical way. So I would um, certainly commend this uh, study for your for your review. So this is uh, I'm Anthony Chan uh, reporting here at ACR Twenty One for Room Now. Hello, uh, hi there. Uh, my name is uh, Yus Yusuf. Uh, I am uh, from uh, Leeds, United Kingdom. Uh, I'm reporting on behalf of the uh, Room Now uh, faculty. Uh, today is uh, day one, unofficially, um, you know, for ACR conference. Uh, there are many uh, plenary sessions and also abstract sessions around. Uh, but one um, oral abstract section uh, that really caught my eyes um, is uh, about uh, factors uh, predicting uh, immunogenicity to the um, COVID vaccination uh, in uh, rituximab-treated uh, people with uh, autoimmune uh, rheumatic disease. Um, so as we know, um, rituximab uh, has been getting uh, quite a bad press during the COVID pandemic uh, because the use of rituximab, especially um, because of their mode of action causing the B-cell depletion, um, hence uh, putting uh, people uh, at risk of infection. Uh, and also uh, there's a quite emerging reports uh, that the use of rituximab also uh, leads to uh, poor COVID outcomes. Um, however, uh, rituximab um, you know, is still needed uh, for some patients, uh, particularly patients with uh, systemic autoimmune connective tissue disease. So therefore, um, we, do, um, we don't really have other option apart from giving a rituximab. Um, hence, uh, it's very um, 
important uh, trying to understand what are the factors that could predict uh, people uh, who will have a seropositive response uh, to the COVID vaccination. So in the abstract session today, um, the abstract title uh, number 0437, uh, Dr. Fierer uh, in um, Israel uh, conducted a prospective um, observational study uh, of uh, the first 108 patients treated with a Pfizer mRNA uh, vaccine. Uh, so these uh, patients, uh, half of them uh, were predominantly rheumatoid arthritis and, and uh, others including uh, vasculitis, lupus, and etc. Um, so um, what they uh, measured uh, after uh, the second uh, COVID, COVID vaccination, so they measured uh, the um, serocom seroconversion, um, and then uh, they tried to um, report in the factors predicting uh, the response. So what they found uh, only about uh, just over 40% people have uh, zero converted. Uh, when they do a uh, multivariable analysis, so uh, they found uh, a few, uh, you know, four factors that could predict uh, uh, the um, poor response. So this including uh, people who um, have a higher number of rituximab cycles previously, uh, people who have lower uh, IgG, uh, people who have non-RA diagnosis, such as vasculitis or uh, myopathy, um, uh, and also the uh, shorter time uh, of uh, rituximab uh, treatment. So these are all uh, important uh, factors uh, so that we as a clinician uh, have to bear in mind when we do have uh, people that we want to treat rituximab, uh, you know, if we can um, try to optimize these factors uh, then hopefully uh, the patient will have a better seroconversion. Uh, however, there's a little bit of a lim uh, limited limitations of the studies, uh, so including uh, they were only measuring, as they didn't measure the T-cell response, um, uh, uh, and also uh, only Pfizer mRNA vaccine that was studied. So potentially it could be different with other uh, non-mRNA vaccines, uh, we don't know. Uh, however, this is very important uh, for us and, and it's quite uh, eye-opening for uh, us as a clinician uh, to inform and counsel our patients. Okay, uh, thank you. And uh, if you want to follow me um, at a use 6 uh, Yusuf, uh, and we will provide more coverage from ACR 21 uh, conference.